Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the North Carolina Court of Appeals. We have two cases on for oral argument this morning. Uh, we are going to start with the first case in sequence on the docket, and that is the Cohane versus the Home Missionaries, Missioners of America case. May it please the court. I'm Leto Copley, and I'm a member of the Orange County Bar, and I'm here on behalf of the plaintiff appellant, and I'm here with my colleague, David Stradley, who also represents the plaintiff. I'd like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. Okay. This, I'd like to take just three sentences to just go through the facts of the case, if I may, and that is, Defendants are two religious entities that at some overlapping times were responsible for the assignment and supervision of an ordained Catholic brother, Al Bem, who both the defendants acknowledge on their websites now was credibly accused of child sexual abuse. One of Bem's victims was the plaintiff here who was nine years old living in an abusive home when Bem started to groom him. Bem continued to prey on the plaintiff as he was transferred from location to location and his parents were not informed why. And Bem ultimately sexually abused the plaintiff after defendants gave him the opportunity to do so by assigning him as the Catholic campus clergy at Western Carolina University. This is a child sex abuse that follows a very familiar pattern. An acknowledged dangerous adult is placed in a position of trust, a troubled child was exposed to him, and the injury is tragic. So the issue in the case is this. Should the courts apply the plain language of the Safe Child Act, a public policy initiative, and a remedial statute to allow the victims of child sex abuse to hold all those who are responsible for the abuse accountable? Or, as the defendants contend, should the court parse the statutory language to limit accountability to direct individual perpetrators and thereby protect those who enabled the perpetrators? And the overriding legal question is this, can this court make a determination to limit the remedy set out in the statute without invading the policy-making province of the General Assembly? Counsel, do we have to address that issue if we um, evaluate the plain language uh, or narrow interpretation issue? Yes, I believe you do, Your Honor, and that's set out in all of the case law, that, that, as, that it's the General Assembly that's the policy-making body, and therefore the General Assembly is given deference when it's enacting legislation. So who enacted this window provision? This is what's unique about this case. Uh, it was a unanimous legislature. How often do we see that? Everyone in this room knows all too well we live in politically polarized times, extremely so. And yet, there's one issue that all the members of the General Assembly, to a person, could agree on here, and that's to help victims of child sexual abuse and to prevent child sexual abuse. Look at who we had on the House. We had John Faircloth of Guilford County, John Torbett, Gaston County, both Republicans, working with Cynthia Ball from Wake County. In the Senate, we had Dan Bishop from Mecklenburg County, working with Tom McInnes, and Republicans with Jay Chowdhury, also from Wake County. And all these legislators worked together to agree on language that would protect children. That's the overriding interest of this statute. So 
they made a policy choice unanimously. They said, we value children enough to say that when they've been harmed by sexual abuse, they deserve a remedy. And one remedy is to expand, and it's a known remedy, is to expand access to our, our civil justice system. And the reason is, it's well established. Child sexual abuse creates harms that reverberate throughout society. There are lifelong harms associated with vulnerable mental health conditions, substance abuse, crime. It's a huge societal problem we need to address so all kids have a chance at a decent life. And it is one of the traumas that provided the incentive for the Chief Justice's establishment of the task force on ACEs, which is the Adverse Childhood Experiences Informed Courts. And that commission continues to meet and promulgate policies. So what role does 4.2, this window legislation, the, the session law, the one that's in question in this case, play? The legislature is presumed to know the law, and they're presumed to know that the civil justice system provides victims a remedy, it provides accountability, and it provides burden shifting. And it helps to disincentivize dangerous activity. One dangerous activity, a known dangerous activity, is where an institution invites children to participate in its activities and then negligently exposes them to pedophiles. And it exposes them, it may expose them to child molesters that they either knew or should have known were a danger to kids. Civil lawsuits are known to create a deterrent effect, as we all know from studying torts. And as our Supreme Court has said in the cases, for example, of De Donato v. Wortman and Harhouse v. Cheek. And the torts, torts involve wrong, the definition of torts, they involve wrongful court conduct which a state seeks to deter and against which it attempts to afford protection. For providing a tort visa is going to be liable for damages. Uh, and in this case, if it's a question about institutional tort visas and their negligent conduct versus individual tort visas and their intentional conduct, who is most likely, least likely to be sued by the legislature creating this window legislation, and that is individual tort visas. And if they are sued, they're the least likely to serve the purposes that the tort system is designed to serve because their cases are unlikely to create any deterrent effect. They're not going to result in policy changes, insurance training, any kind of um, policy changes such as you see in this other parts of the Safe Child Act, which require training of school personnel, for example, to recognize the signs of child sexual abuse and prevent those signs of child sexual abuse. So the case holds, the opinion below was that uh, the, the window legislation was needed to be narrowly interpreted. So <clears throat> not only does that contradict the, the examination that courts are required to undertake when they Engage, engage in statutory interpretation. But also, just taking a step back and looking at it, it is, it's not plausible. If you're looking at the language of this statute, the term for versus related to, two terms, it is simply not plausible that the General Assembly hid protections for enablers of child sexual abuse by burying it in a proposition in a statute versus what is a, either a, a preposition, excuse me, preposition 
by burying it in, a, in either a preposition or a prepositional phrase, it's unclear what related to is. Um, I'm not a grammarian, so I'm not sure what exactly it's called. I've seen different things. But, but the idea that the General Assembly would require us to go looking and parsing through prepositions to determine that it excluded an entire class of defendants from an otherwise um, generous statute when it comes to protecting children is, is simply not plausible. So, and the case is, it's very straightforward. There are, there are three requirements in this case. There are three important phrases in section 4.2b of this case, of this statute. And that's the window legislation, which is a session law that holds the force of law. First, and, and there's a, to back up, there's, there are two steps. So first, as Judge Gore, you said, we look at the plain language of the statute. Can we determine what the General Assembly intended by the plain language of the statute? And we say that we can. So we look at that. If we can't do that, then we go to the second step, which is interpreting the statute. But it, that's only if the language is unclear. So plain language, three phrases. Any civil action. Any is a very broad term. Civil action has a specific definition, which is also broad. It means anything that's not criminal, essentially. And there was a place where if the General Assembly wanted to say, we're only going to allow a civil action against an individual perpetrator, that was a place they could have put it. Make it very clear, like other states have, that those few states that have done that. Next is for child sexual abuse, and that's where the court below him got hung up. For child sexual abuse means it, it has a common synonym with related to. They're prepositions, prepositional phrases. This is a child sexual abuse case, just like another case is a car wreck case, like a wrongful death is a wrongful death case, like a sexual harassment case is a sexual harassment case. In a sexual harassment case, I bring these all the time. We don't say, I'm suing an institution for negligent retention, negligent supervision. What I say is I'm bringing a sexual harassment case. In these cases where I, I bring lawsuits against institutions, it's I'm bringing a sex abuse case. And I'm, I don't work on the defense side, but I imagine they're saying I'm defending against a sex abuse case and not listing the individual claims. And that's where we get to section three, or the third clause or phrase in this statute, which is any case that's otherwise time barred under GS 1-52. And that's very important because 4.2b refers specifically to GS 152, which sets out statutes of limitations for a broad range of torts. And there's, they are both intentional and negligent torts. And there's another place that the General Assembly could have limited the window legislation to intentional torts, but did not. Could have said otherwise, um, otherwise expired under GS 152. 19, which covers assault and battery, for example. So this case fits the language precisely just as the court um, said in the Doe 1K case that was, that was decided this last fall. Now, are we going to, so we think we've met that clear language provision. Moving on to looking at other sources of statutory interpretations. There are two principles to keep in mind and that are prevailing throughout all the case law. First, your to, courts are to avoid a construction that defeats or impairs the purpose of the act. So the purpose of this act is to protect children. 
if two sections use different words, and there are many cases on this, if two sections use different words, those words are to be reconciled. And second, a remedial statute must be interpreted broadly. And that's um, primarily in the case of O&M Industries v. Smith Engineering Company, which is cited in our brief. And you interpret that remedial statute broadly in light of the evils to be eliminated, the remedies intended to be applied, the objective to be attained, and the legislature is presumed to act with reason and common sense. And if a literal reason, a little reading leads to absurd results, the purpose of the statute is what controls. And I will point out, I expect the uh, defendant to argue the, the MIW case, uh, which is a, which is a, as, as happened in the brief, um, this is a case involving a termination of parental rights, and, and the case is instructive because it was from the Supreme Court. It involved the exercise of jurisdiction versus whether the court had jurisdiction. And the point of the case is that the Supreme Court determined that look to the purpose of the statute, and they look to the purpose of the juvenile code and that section of the juvenile code that deals with termination of parental rights. And that termination of parental rights, the court found that it was important to, for the court to have jurisdiction and exercise its jurisdiction, keeping in mind the time limits that are required to make sure a child is in a safe home once there has been evidence, significant evidence of abuse and neglect. So again, the looking at the statute when there are, or interpreting these statutes, when there are conflicting words or words that seem not to be uh, congruous or seem to have different meanings, the whole point of all of these cases and the guidance from the Supreme Court is to look at what's the overriding purpose of the statute and reconcile those terms so they are in compliance with the, with the guidance of the or the purpose of the statute. We have, there are three cases of the, of the ones we've cited. I'll just point to three and I won't go into the details, but the Puckett v. Sellers case that from the Supreme Court is in our brief. The Commissioner of Insurance v. Auto Rate Office case, which we submitted as additional authority. And the Insulation Systems v. Fisher case, which we had cited. In all those cases, those three have in common that either there were words that were used alternately or there was something added on by the trial court that was not in the statute. So in this case, we have the trial court adding on, in essence, a phrase against individual that, that the, the trial court is saying the legislature is allowing claims to go forward that, that are against individual perpetrators, where that language is nowhere in the statute nowhere in anyone's discussion. And in these cases, in one of them, uh, the legislature was said to, ex uh, the auto insurance case, the court said you can't exclude something. If the legislature wanted to exclude something, they could have done it explicitly. And they didn't do it so the court wasn't going to add it or exclude it, this category. The same with insulation systems. The court, the trial court imposed a willfulness, willfulness standard where there was none there. And the court said, you can't do that. And then with the Puckett v. Sellers case back from 1952, the court was using the terms shall and may interchangeably to affect the deterrent purpose of the Tobacco Regulation Act, and I might not be quoting that exactly, but the tobacco regulations and rules that required the regulation of that industry so as to regulate commerce and not flood the market. 
The point was the court said we can use shall and may and use the construction that is consonant with the general purpose of the statute. In other states that have looked at these, have, these, this is not, as you've seen from the amicus briefs, this is not the first case to enact a window legislation such as this. In all the other states that have, have limited the coverage to, of the window legislation to individual perpetrators, all those other states have said so explicitly in their statutes. And then there are several states where the statute was silent as to who the window legislation covered. And in those states, the courts have held that the statute should be given a broad interpretation and that it, was, it did not make sense for the statute to be given a limited interpretation in light of what the uh, statute was intended to accomplish. So we've said in our brief, we set out what the sponsor of the legislation had to say. And uh, that is one of the factors. If, you get to, if you're looking at the plain language of the statute, you don't need to get here. Um, but if you are looking at interpreting the statute versus um, in uh, light of the factors that are set out in the Fisher case, which uh, are the Fisher factors are stated on pages 25 to 26 of our brief, Your Honors. And there is a set of up to 12 factors, and 12 being a catch-all, other like means. Those are all the factors you can look at to to determine how to interpret this language if we consider it to be vague. But uh, one of those factors is the legislative history and what Representative Rydell, who was the sponsor of the legislation, gave a description. And we have given a transcript of his floor speech. And he says, and this is at page 26 of our brief, the trend in our land, friends, is recognizing the brain science that's out there, the long-term debilitating effects it has on a child to be abused like this, and the ability to finally come forward only as an adult, as a seasoned adult. Again, remember the average age of disclosing to someone that you've been abused in this terrible way as a child is age 52. Now, and here's the important part. Now the bill also allows a two-year window of looking back, one-time deal for anybody over the age of 38 at the time the legislation had an age of 38 for anybody over the and now it has no age limit for anybody over the age of 38 who wants to come forward and file a civil suit they have two years in which to do that so this window legislation is exactly what the legislature intended unanimously this case is exactly the kind of case that the drafters and the unanimous general, unanimous general assembly intended. And with that, I will take any questions if you have them. Thank you. You have 11 minutes left. Good morning. Thank you, and may it please the court. My name is Josh Davey. I'm with the Troutman Pepper Law Firm in Charlotte. I'm here on behalf of the Roman Catholic Diocese of Charlotte. I'm joined here by Mr. Steve Epstein of the Pointer Spruill Law Firm here in Raleigh, who represents the Glen Mary Home Missioners. 
I think it's appropriate to acknowledge at the outset today the significance of the issues before the court, both in this case and in the McKinney case to follow. They're of great significance for all of the victims of sexual abuse whose claims are asserted in these cases. They're of great significance to the defendants who are facing those claims, and also of great significance to the uh, judicial system of North Carolina. And I think that makes the court's interpretive task today even more weighty. And we are asking the court to affirm the judgment of the Superior Court because the court below correctly held that the revival provision in Section 4.2b of the Safe Child Act does not revive Mr. Cohen's claims against the Diocese in Glen Mary because its plain language does not cover those claims. As the court approaches the task of interpreting the statute today, we start with basic canons of statutory construction. First and foremost, plain meaning of the text governs, and I think Ms. Copley agrees with that. The court is to interpret the statute in accordance with its ordinary meaning based on the text. This is a command of our Supreme Court, and in fact, parsing of the statute is part of the court's job as it interprets the statute. This plain text analysis requires the court to do a few things. First of all, the court must give every word of the statute effect. It must look at the different parts of the statute that address the same subject matter and construe them together such that different words used in the same statute have different meanings. And the court must adopt a construction of the statute that's consistent with our state's constitution if that is possible. If these interpretive principles yield a clear and unambiguous meaning, the analysis ends there. And there's no need to resort to other canons of constructions for example, whether the statute is uh, remedial in nature. So, so I, I have some questions about the plain language. I've read your briefs carefully. There's a couple of things I'm still struggling with. One is looking just to the text. I, I still haven't heard an answer that, that satisfies me about why is for so much more narrow than regarding and then as you mentioned, we're obligated to give every word meaning, and I feel like there's a lot of disregard of the word in the in 4.2b, any civil action. So tell me what any means, according to the trial court and your clients, and why I should be compelled that four is so much narrower, so much obviously uh, more narrow than regarding. Thank you, Your Honor. So to take the second question first, I think that's more, uh, more direct. Any means any, and we don't dispute that that means any civil action. That's not where the limiting effect of 4.2b comes from. But, so, but any means broad, and would you agree with me that the trial court said in that section, any excluded anyone who wasn't a direct and intentional perpetrator of child sexual abuse? That is because of the other parts of 4.2b. And again, reading the whole um, statute as a whole, any civil action for child sexual abuse otherwise time barred by the prior version of statute of limitations. So there's a few requirements. Any civil action, that requirement is satisfied. Otherwise time barred, that's also satisfied. Everyone agrees that Mr. Cohane's claims were asserted long after the statutes of limitation expired. But the trial and court is saying it's not any. The trial court is limiting the kinds of civil actions to ones that are brought against the direct perpetrator of the, the sexual crime of child, the, the crime of sexual child abuse, and he is excluding from any civil action 
any tort that would be aimed at institutions like churches or schools, trusted institutions that might be facilitating, perpetuating, enabling child sexual abuse. How does that come from any civil action? It comes from the word for child sexual abuse. So what does that mean? That's the key part of the statute, for child sexual abuse. And the word for there indicates the purpose or the goal of the civil action. So, and we don't need a dictionary to understand this actually because we can look to uh, chapter one, section two of the general statutes, which defines the term action. And it defines it to include an ordinary proceeding in the court of justice by which a party prosecutes another party for the redress or prevention of a wrong. So to take an example, if we talk about a civil action for breach of contract, what we're talking about is a civil action that asserts a claim for breach of contract and seeks a remedy for a breach of contract. That's the goal of that action. It's obviously not an action whose intention is to breach a contract, which is an argument that um, Ms. Ms. Copley made in their briefs. Likewise, the ordinary meaning of the phrase civil action for child sexual abuse is a lawsuit that asserts a claim for child sexual abuse in particular, not a claim for negligence, which is what we have here. Do we have a common law or statutory tort claim for child sexual abuse? What I tend to see are, um, you know, battery, assault, um, you know, the negligence and, and you know, failure to investigate and protect children. Well, the battery and the assault claims are the typical claims you see for the abusive acts. But it's not a common, a common law tort or a statutory tort for child sexual abuse. Would you agree with me? I don't believe there's a common law cause of action called child sexual abuse or a statutory cause of action called child sexual abuse, right? But that's different. Um, if you look at Mr. Cohen's claims in this case against the diocese in Glen Mary, he, he's not alleging that either defendant committed child sexual abuse. What he's alleging is they were negligent in their supervision of Mr. Bem. Counsel, I guess following that line of comparison, you brought up the, the example of contract, breach of contract. Yes, Your Honor. So would the theory that you're posing and the ruling from the trial judge, would it deny someone from bringing a claim against a third party, for example, in the tort realm, torturous interference with a contract? They're not responsible for the breach, but they did something that hindered the execution or the operation of the contract. So again, not you know, the direct you know, negligent party or breaching party, but they were ancillary to the contractual action and a torts brought against them. Would, would they be out of, out of the realm of being prosecuted in the civil, civil litigation? Your Honor, I think the ordinary way we would talk about that type of a claim is we would call it either a civil action for tortious interference, or we might call it a civil action related to breach of contract. But you wouldn't call it a civil action for breach of contract because again, the claim is tortious interference with contract. And I think this point is driven home in, this, in the Child Safe Act when we compare the language in section 4.2 with the language in section 4.1, which um, I think reveals that the Superior Court was correct in concluding that the General Assembly intended to create a distinction here between a narrower category of claims for child sexual abuse against the perpetrators and a broader category of claims related to child sexual abuse, which could include claims like the negligence claims asserted against the diocese in Glen Mary here. And this is because section 4.1 of the statute uses different language. 
That's the section that amends chap um, chapter 1, section 52, the statute of limitations. And it now reads that a plaintiff may file a civil action against a defendant for claims related to sexual abuse suffered when the plaintiff was under 18 until the plaintiff attains 28 years of age. So under the well-established canons of statutory construction that our Supreme Court has endorsed, that language there related to sexual abuse, which is different from the language in the revival provision in section 4.2, must be given a different meaning. Well, so using that argument, there's also different language. A plaintiff um, may file a civil act, sorry. A plaintiff um, may file a civil action against a defendant is different language than um, revives any civil action. So what's, if I'm following your argument and different words in different parts of the statutes must have different meanings rather than being reconciled, what's the difference then between the a plaintiff may file a civil action against a defendant versus any civil action in 4.2b? Well, 4.2b is talking about revival, so it's not talking about filing a civil action. So that's one reason. You're talking about a different posture. Section 4.1 deals with the go-forward situation, right, as to um, new claims that might be asserted in the future. And that's why it says a plaintiff may file. Whereas Section 4.2b talks about revival of claims um, that were previously time-barred. A little bit different problem, and the General Assembly chose to use different language to uh, address that. But I don't think that impacts the meaning of the difference between for child sexual abuse as opposed to related to child sexual abuse and that distinction that the General Assembly created in the statute. Uh, we also see this when we look at section 4.4 of the Safe Child Act, um, which uses the term child sexual abuse in the context of training programs that organizations must implement. And I think by reading the examples of what constitutes the training for child sexual abuse, we can see that the General Assembly there is focused on abusive acts, not negligent supervision. So that training mandates certain topics be covered, such as grooming process of sexual predators, or what to do, um, how to intervene when sexual abuse is suspected. Nothing in the topics listed suggests that negligent supervision itself is sexual abuse. Now you may disagree that we need to get there, but is there any dispute that in recent, both in discussion on the legislative floor and in recent time, we've come to terms with the fact that institutional perpetration of child sex abuse is an identified and real problem, and it isn't just the individual perpetrator, that we have schools and churches creating atmospheres that allow child predators to do very evil things to children. Your Honor, there is absolutely no question that child sexual abuse is a grave evil, and no one disputes that. Um, I would submit that that in and of itself, however, does not answer the question before the court, which is what are the particular lines that the General Assembly drew in addressing that problem? And the General Assembly, of course, had to draw lines. It chose to create a two-year revival period instead of a three-year or a five-year or a ten-year. It had chose to cap the age for new claims at 28 rather than 38 as was proposed, or I believe there was a version of the statute that was suggested 50. So in drawing those lines, that's the, that's the question before the court, is what has the General Assembly done through the text of the statute to address what everyone agrees is a grave problem? And while it's not the role of this court to second guess the policy decisions of the General Assembly, it makes perfect sense, actually, that the General Assembly would choose to treat claims 
against the actual perpetrators differently from claims for negligence against employers, particularly when we're talking about the revival of claims that have been time barred for decades. It makes sense because the perpetrators themselves, and not the employers, are the ones primarily responsible for having committed that sexual abuse. This is reflected in our law, which, for example, provides that employers will not be liable and respond yet superior for the intentional criminal acts of their employees, absent ratification of those acts. And it also makes sense given the evidentiary problems that are associated with reviving decades-old claims against organizations, which in many cases will have no witnesses and no documents relevant to the claims at issue. That's a, that's a policy concern, right? And I assume for me, uh, not to fast forward into the constitutional questions, but assume for me that that's not the case. First, you know, a po the, if there is a policy argument against the revival window, like you just said, because people are getting older and forgetting, if you have cases where that's not true, so under the statute that, um, the part of the statute that allows uh, lawsuits filed after a criminal conviction of a child sex abuse perpetrator, isn't the presumption there that plainly there weren't any issues with the quality and quantum of evidence and its reliability such that our courts convicted um, an individual of that? And that's exactly the point that I'm making, Your Honor, which is in that circumstance where an individual has been convicted of a felony beyond a reasonable doubt, it, the legislature obviously concluded that the evidentiary concerns, if there were any, were not an obstacle to allowing a claim to proceed. That is different, though, from a case like Mr. Cohane, who filed his lawsuit against our clients when he was in his later 50s, uh, involving events that happened in the 1970s and 80s. Um, those are very old claims, and it's different also from the, from the situation you see under uh, rule, uh, excuse me, section 4.1. This is the go, forward, the go forward world, which allows assertion of claims up to the age of 28. Those plaintiffs, by definition, 28 years and under, are gonna be asserting claims involving much more recent facts than those like Mr. Cohane here. And it also, the choice to um, limit the revival of long expired claims to claims against the perpetrators itself also contrasts from an evidentiary perspective with the issues in those claims against the perpetrators. And what I mean by that is that the, the case against the perpetrator is gonna turn on the evidence and the credibility of the, the plaintiff and the credibility of the alleged perpetrator defendant. And it's a different evidentiary issue than dealing with the situation where there's no records. But where, and, where are you getting that from? I, I don't understand on this record or generally why we would assume based on the revival window portion of the statute that there's some big evidentiary difference between the evidence it would take to bring a, 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 law, a tort for assault and battery against a priest versus to bring a negligence tort for against the church, the diocese, whoever, who moved him from place to place to place to place where he could commit those torts, those assault and battery torts. Like, where are we getting that? Where are you My point, that? Your Honor, is simply that the statutory interpretation that we're offering is, is not without a sound rationale. And again, it's not the, this court's function to second guess the, the text that the General Assembly has enacted. And that is what the court must interpret and apply. And my point in bringing this up is simply to say that it's reasonable um, what the General Assembly did here in terms of creating the distinction between the claims for child sexual abuse and related to child sexual abuse for purposes of reviving very old,
time-barred causes of action. And if there were any doubt about that interpretation of the statute, the principle of constitutional avoidance dictates that that's the correct interpretation in this case. So as the court knows, under that doctrine, um, the, the court will avoid reaching constitutional questions unless the uh, res resolution excuse me, of that constitutional question is necessary to resolve the case. And here, um, as the court also knows, longstanding precedent from our Supreme Court and from this court holds that the General Assembly may not revive a time-barred cause of action. And applying that principle, this court can and should adopt the interpretation of Section 4.2 endorsed by the Superior Court to avoid the need to reach the constitutional question in this case. Um, I'd like to turn now to responding to some of the arguments that we heard from Ms. Copley. Be before we get there, I mean, in order to avoid constitutional issues, that presumes that we have the jurisdiction or authority to rule that um, a part of this statute is unconstitutional. I read a lot of recent cases that suggest to me that this court has no authority to rule on the constitutionality of a, of a duly enacted statute that didn't first come <laughs> through a three-judge panel, at least on a facial review, a facial review. Cite me a case that tells me that I even have the authority to do that, that would even put into option this idea of constitutional avoidance. Sure, that case is the Holdstock case from this court, but I'll come back to that in a moment because I'd like to address the first point. The first point is that the principle of constitutional avoidance is an interpretive principle. And the court need not, the court does have the power to hold that the um, application of the 4.2b, as Mr. Cohen argues for, is unconstitutional. But even if it didn't, the court would still have the power as an interpretive matter with the principle of constitutional avoidance to say, we must construe the statute in a way that avoids a constitutional problem. So that's the constitutional avoidance point. Now getting to your, your second point, Judge Riggs, about can the court address the constitutional question? The answer there is yes. So the three-judge panel statute under Chapter 1, Section 267, and Rule 42 applies when there's a facial constitutional challenge made in the complaint, answer, or response of pleading. We don't have that here because the challenge was made in a 12B6 motion to dismiss, which under the, this court's decision in the Hardin case is not a response to pleading. And in addition to that, we would, this, our challenge is not a facial challenge, it's an as-applied challenge, as was the issue in the um, uh, crime case that the court recently decided. Um, but even if that were not the case, Your Honor, if you read the Holdstock decision, it talks about how this three-judge panel um, statute applies and what the court may or may not do. This court specifically held that its decision there does not apply to the appellate courts. And there's a good reason for that, and that is that it's well established that this court can affirm on any basis in the record. And if the court reviews the record and concludes that it, it must um, address the constitutional issue, um, then it, what it must do is affirm the superior court on that basis, because it's well settled that um, the General Assembly may not, by statute, revive a time-barred claim. The Wilkes County decision and the decisions of this court applying that principle are, are binding precedents that the court must follow regardless of what it thinks about the merits of the um, arguments for and against you know, that, that principle of law. Counsel, do we, do we get to there at this point in light of a lack of a ruling on the request for the three-judge panel transfer? Because uh, obviously there was 
no ruling from the Superior Court. So I understand the, the answering the question on the issue of constitutionality, but do we even get there without having a ruling from the Superior Court? I think you, you do, Your Honor, and for a couple of reasons. First of, all, first of all, we believe the case should be resolved on the non-constitutional statutory grounds. But even setting that aside, um, I think this court, again, may affirm on the basis, um, any basis that appears in the record, and it's clear uh, that the um, rejudge panel statute doesn't apply here. This is a case that it wouldn't have required transfer to that three-judge panel because the, the, uh, the as-applied challenge was raised in a 12B6 motion. So it just doesn't trigger the requirements of the statute. Um, turning to some of the points that Mr. Cohen made in his brief and Ms. Copley's made an argument today, um, I think the unifying theme to all those arguments is that they don't respect the textual distinction in the statute between foreign and related to. In fact, Mr. Cohen in his brief and the Amici essentially argue the court should ignore the plain language of the statute. The phrase that Mr. Cohen uses is to step beyond the plain language and rule in his favor to, quote, keep with the purpose of the statute as a whole. But again, as I mentioned a moment ago, talking about the purpose of the statute doesn't address the question before the court, which is what do the words enacted by the General Assembly mean as applied to this case? And what Mr. Cohen's doing is asking the court to violate the clear principles of statutory construction that our Supreme Court has endorsed. Again, the court should look to the text of the statute first and foremost. And here, that text unambiguously draws a distinction between claims for child sexual abuse and claims related to, which include the negligence claims against the appellees here. There was a lot of discussion in the briefs and in the yesterday's submission about dictionary definitions. I would submit the court doesn't need the dictionary to resolve this case. Um, chapter 1, Section 2 of the, of the general statutes defines the word action, and uh, we used the example a moment ago of a civil action for breach of contract. I think the ordinary way we use those terms indicates that the action, a civil action for child sexual abuse, must be one that asserts a claim for that and not for negligence. But even if you do resort to the dictionary, the first definition cited in Mr. Cohen's brief is the one that applies here. For is a word that uh, means a purpose or the goal of the civil action. The goal of the civil action is to assert a claim for child sexual abuse. That's not this case. Mr. Uh, Cohen also addressed in his brief this court's decision in the John Doe 1 K versus Diocese of Charlotte case that was decided about a year and a half ago and argues that that case forecloses the appellee's argument here. That is also incorrect because that, the holding of the court in that case rested on race judicata and not on the statutory interpretation issue around section 4.2, the four versus related to distinction. In fact, that was actually briefed to the court in that case, but was not addressed by the court in its opinion. And I think what that means is that the statement that Mr. Cohen relies on is the classic definition of dicta um, that was not essential to the holding there and does not control the outcome here. Um, Mr. Cohen also notes um, comments by a legislator um, in, in the floor debates around the passage of the bill. Um, again, the, the comments of one member of the General Assembly don't control the the plain text of the statute controls. But it's worth noting that the comments that Mr. Cohen relies on were made um, well before the statute was, was passed, several months before, and before the language using related to in section 4.1 was added to the bill under consideration. Um, I'd also point out that other portions of the legislative history indicate that the intent of the bill's sponsors in extending the statute of limitations was to, quote, shift the cost to the perpetrator and away from the rest of us. And I think that fits with Appley's understanding 
of the statute. Again, Your Honors, we think the statutory question is the controlling question here. Um, we don't think it's necessary for the court to reach the constitutional issue to resolve this case. As I said, if the court does feel that the, the constitutional issue does need to be reached, we think the court can affirm on that basis and must affirm on the basis of the binding decision in Wilkes County. And I know the court's about to hear extensive arguments about that issue from very able counsel in the McKinney case, so um, I, will, I will stop there on that point. Unless Don't go court... anywhere, Mr. Davey. I, Certainly. I have questions. Certainly. So there's several different positions that a plaintiff can, can occupy in regards to uh, bringing these actions. Mr. Cohane, as I understand it, occupies the position of he's outside of the 28-year-old cap, but he's within the two-year post-conviction window. Not, not correct, Your Honor. The, uh, Mr. Ben was not convicted of a felony, and that provision of the statute was not applied to Mr. Cohen's claims. Okay. All right. That might be a different case, but that's not the case presented here. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. Just a few points, Your Honors. Uh, when it comes to uh, Mr. Bem. Mr. Bem has not been convicted. He is outside the country. He has uh, been located most recently in Myanmar, but he, um, but he is acknowledged and listed on the websites of the defendants as credibly accused of child sexual abuse. So um, that's the distinction there, just to clarify that. You know, the, the problem with this for versus related to is we, the court has no standards to follow in parsing out prepositions and prepositional phrases. And the Supreme Court most recently is, uh, in Harper v. Hall has been, which I think is going to be addressed in a later argument, but it's been very clear you have to, there have to be standards when you're making these decisions. And if, and if, if people need to know what they're looking at, well, does for, what does for mean? Is for broader than because of? We're, there has to be a rule for it, and there aren't any rules so far that say anything about that. The rules do talk about uh, is the, are the words used in a statute, when different words are used, are they harmonious? Are they, can you give an harmonious interpretation that meets, that fits the intent or, or carries out the intent of the legislature? And when it comes to it being a child sexual abuse case, uh, and I know Judge Gore, I think, had the, uh, the question was, you know, what if it's a contract dispute and you're being accused, somebody's being accused of interfering with the contract? Well, the question is, what's somebody going to say about that? How are you going to describe it? So, you know, I don't represent institutions generally, but I do talk to people who run them and or own them, and they say to me, gosh, the thing I don't want is for my business to get sued for sexual harassment. Or, yeah, I got this lawsuit going. It's a... It's a contract dispute. There's even, nobody's going to say, get down in the weeds about what the actual claims are in a lawsuit. That's what the litigators and the judges do. So uh, even in that case, Mr. Davies said, uh, when answering Judge Core, your question said, uh, it, well, Your Honor, that would be a case either for four or related to a contract dispute. Well, that's exactly what we have here. We have a child sex abuse case. It's either for or related to child sex abuse. And the training is, the training section was a good example also because it shows the intent of the legislature to address this institutional problem where institutions have not been training 
their staffs adequately. They've not been looking out for the signs. They've been ignoring the signs of child sex abuse and hope that the problem is going to go away. They counsel the person who's done it and say, just, you know, keep your hands off the kids and we'll be fine. We'll move you to a new place and give you a, a fresh start. And that's exactly what Section 4.4 is designed to address in it for the, the institutions that the General Assembly has control over through writing this public policy legislation. We're, we're, I understand your argument, but you, ju you just said that's where the General Assembly wanted to address the institutions. That's not in the statute. They don't mention the institutions in that portion of the statute. That's, that's the plainest reading of the statute is the, the uh, appellee in, in this case reads it differently. So it, talk to me a little bit about that reading and how we get there. Well, how you get there is the three portions of the window legislation, which is any civil action, any, and again, in the states that have limited these window provisions to institutions they have set or to individual perpetrators, that is exactly the place where they have inserted that language. In a, in a similar place, they've inserted it, and one of our amicus briefs does deal with that, but they've inserted that language against an individual perpetrator. So that would be a place to, for everyone to know that you don't mean, you don't really mean any civil action, you just mean a limited kind of civil action. And then the four child sexual abuse, which we've gone over, but then that was otherwise time barred under GS 152. And GS 152, again, is not limited. GS 152 only focuses, uh, GS-152 is a broad statute that covers statutes of limitations for both intentional and negligent torts, and those are exactly the kinds of claims that are being brought here. A negligence-based tort that is very similar to the Doe v. Raleigh Diocese case and the Doe 1K versus Charlotte Diocese. So they're very similar. So those two places are where the legislature had every opportunity to say, hey, we're only limiting this to individuals. And neither place, both places were silent. And what the only difference is this word for versus related to, which are two words with a common synonym, which is concerning. And they both, they, I don't know which is, and I know the defense allegation is, or uh, argument, is that for is a more limited term than related to. I, I don't know how we can say that. We don't have a standard that says that. It's, it would take an expert in, in linguistics, I think, or, or grammar to tell us that. And I, I've been able to find no guiding principle that this court could follow that would say we are going to parse prepositions to find that some are more narrow than others. Four is, I think I said, I think I found it in our brief, is the 11th most widely used word in the English language and has multiple meanings. There are two meanings that apply here. And I would point out that the, the meaning, the definition that was urged by the defendants to be used and that the court below found should be used is the meaning for the purpose of. That constrains logic, I suggest you. For the purpose, nobody files a lawsuit for the purpose of accomplishing child sex abuse. We don't, the purpose of the lawsuit is to attain redress for the 
child sex abuse. So, and as I understand it, the trial court was fairly open that it was reading into the word for um, a civil action against a direct perpetrator of an intentional child sex abuse act, right? That, it, it seems that way. I and, and then that required essentially a modification of the word any in front of civil, civil action, is that? Your understanding yes, of what disregarding, the trial court disregarding the term any and also disregarding the whole body of law that says when you have a remedial statute, it needs to be interpreted liberally. And that's, there are many, many cases on statutory interpretation, some, a lot of them cited in our briefs. All of them are consistent that when, that the court is making the effort to interpret the statute in a way so as to uphold the intent of the legislature and which is expressed throughout this statute as one that is to address child sex abuse. And I do want to, there is a, um, Mr. Davey had brought up that if there are two reasonable constructions, one is to interpret them so as to avoid the constitutional question or two constructions you are to avoid them to avoid, excuse me, construe the statute when there are two reasonable constructions so as to avoid a constitutional question. Don't think you can do that here. Those constructions have to be reasonable. And these are not, it's not a reasonable construction that buried deep down in a statute, there's a difference between for and related to. It puts no one on notice. And none of the case law is consistent, that we have cited is consistent with that interpretation. Thank you uh, for the very interesting and high-quality arguments from both sides. Uh, that concludes the arguments in the first case for hearing today. And we're going to take a few minutes to retool before we uh, hear arguments in the second case. <laughs>